Hey y'all, you're listening to the Faith Church Sermon Podcast. We are so excited that you're connecting with us today. It is our desire for you to grow as a result of the resources we provide here. We pray that this blesses you today as you seek to know Him more. I lived in Texas for several years and we have a saying down there, all hat, no cattle. And it refers to people who walk around with these giant cowboy hats, but they don't have the first clue about what it means to rope and ride. And we usually say this to describe those people that are all talk and no substance. People who aren't quite who they appear to be. None of us like inauthenticity. We like people who will do what they say and say what they mean. We don't like fakeness in our elected officials, in our business leaders, in our celebrities, in anyone. And if that's bad in government and in business and even in Hollywood, then how much more so in the church and in our everyday lives? So as followers of Jesus, are we ever not who we appear to be? We're in a series working our way through the first three chapters of the book of Romans. And if I'm being honest, this is a challenging book because one, this is a very technical book and so it requires us to parse through the language and the nuances of theology. And two, when we do that, we come across some very difficult teachings, teachings that challenge us and how we live our lives. In 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul writes that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God, you and me, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And if we believe that, then we don't get to ignore a passage because it's hard to understand or it's hard to stomach. We have to be faithful to understand these nuances and to allow these teachings, however hard they may be, to challenge and change us and how we live our lives. We're diving into one of those passages today, so let's pray and then we'll jump in together. God, we thank you that we can gather together as a family, as your family. And as we come before your word, God, we come to meet you. And so we just ask that you would meet with us in these next moments. Would you take a moment and pray for yourself? Wherever this week has taken you, would you ask God to meet you where you are? And then would you take a moment and pray for me that these would be God's words, that they would be helpful to you. God, I just ask that you would speak to each and every heart today. Would you meet with us? Would you encounter us today? That when we leave here, we would love you more and know you more than in this moment right now. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up, turn them on. We are in Romans chapter two, verses 12 to 29. The apostle Paul is writing, all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. 
And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by the nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences sometimes also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. I pause there for a moment, and if it's not obvious yet, throughout much of Romans and including our passage today, is focused on the law. So why is Paul so focused on the law, and what does he mean when he says the law? Remember, the church in Rome is comprised of Jewish Christians, Jews who are following Jesus, and also Gentile Christians, non-Jews who are following Jesus. And the Jews also follow what Paul is referring to as the law. And when anytime we see the law talked about in the New Testament, it's referring to commands and instructions that are from God and passed down through Moses. And so it's also referred to as the Mosaic law. And the Jewish people would follow these customs and these traditions. And as Christians, they would also continue to practice these customs and traditions and the law in addition to following Jesus. But since this is Jewish law, the Gentile Christians never had this law. They were never given this law and they didn't practice it. So the Jewish Christians are following Jesus and they're practicing the law and the Gentile Christians are following Jesus and they're not practicing Jewish law. And so a dispute arises in the church. Because the Jewish Christians believe that the Gentile Christians need to follow the law. And the Gentile Christians say, no, the grace of Christ is sufficient. And so Paul hears of this dispute and he writes the letter to the church in Rome, the book of Romans, to clearly spell out what the gospel of Jesus Christ entails. And so the book of Romans becomes one of the most technical and definitive presentations of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, while that debate between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians isn't a debate that we have today in our church, the question at the core of that debate is a question that we need to answer as Christians in the 21st century. What is the role of the law for Christians today? Amid this jargon about being apart from the law and under the law and judged by the law and away from the law, there is an underlying theme that we can draw out. All of us sin. Notice what Paul says in verse 12. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. There are two groups. All who sin apart from the law, the Gentile Christians who sin, and all who sin under the law, the Jewish Christians who sin. Those that are apart from the law and those that are under the law. But regardless... All of them are sinners. The law doesn't prevent sin or save us from sin. Verse 13, for it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight. So if having the law, if hearing it, if knowing it doesn't make us righteous, then what makes us righteous? Paul goes on, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. 
Imagine you've been charged with a crime and you come to court. If you tell the judge, I know the law, I understand the law, that is not a valid defense. You have to follow the law. You have to obey the law. And the same thing applies to God's law. Knowing it or hearing it or even understanding it does not save us. We have to obey it. And we have to obey every command that God gives us. Now, some of you might be thinking, wait, hold up. I thought that the only way to be righteous is through what Jesus did for us on the cross. So, so why is Paul saying here that those who obey the law will be declared righteous? Note here that Paul is not suggesting that we earn our salvation or that we can somehow earn our way to righteousness. But what Paul is doing is he is highlighting our sin problem. If we obey God's law, if we obey every command that God gives us, we are righteous. The problem is none of us have done that. None of us are able to keep every command that God gives us. Sin is disobedience to God, and all of us have sinned. Paul clearly articulates this in Romans 3. He says, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So none of us have been able to follow the law. None of us are able to keep every one of God's commands. And so the question then is, then what is the role of the law? What's its purpose? The law is not a savior. It is a mirror that shows us our sins. If the law reflects God's standard, then the law doesn't save us, but it does show us our sin and it shows us the gravity of our sin. So here's the thing. We may not be Jewish and we may not have the Mosaic law. But remember, Paul's writing to Christians, both the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians. And so while he's parsing an issue that's specific to the Mosaic law and to that congregation, the law helps us see ourselves for who we really are. For example, look at verses 21 and 22. Verse 21, you who preach against stealing, do you steal? Now, most of us aren't going out and committing grand larceny. But what about that small thing that nobody's going to know this has gone missing? Or what about underreporting your income so you don't have to pay so much in taxes? Or taking credit for something that clearly your coworker or your classmate did? Verse 22, you who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? That hits home for some of you. Add to that what Jesus says about adultery, that lusting after another person is committing adultery. Now that hits home for a lot of us. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Now, most of us probably aren't spending our weekends robbing temples. So let's translate this into modern language. You who abhor the world, do you chase the world? Notice how Paul describes this behavior. He says, you who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul doesn't just call this sin. He says we dishonor God and we blaspheme God's name. When we who lay claim to the word of God go out and violate it, 
We dishonor God and we blaspheme his name. Author Brendan Manning calls out this behavior. He says, Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips then walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. So if the law is a mirror and not a savior, then how are we saved from our sin? So Paul's going to first address this by discussing what doesn't work, and then he's going to pivot to talk about God's plan and God's path for us. So in verse 25, we see Paul launch into an explanation about the details of circumcision. Now, before anyone panics, we are not going to get into circumcision this morning. But why is Paul discussing it here? Circumcision was required by the Jewish faith. This was part of the law that we were just talking about. And Jewish Christians continued to practice it even after following Jesus. But for the Gentile Christians, this was never part of their tradition. This was never part of their law. And so they didn't practice it. But the Jewish Christians wanted the Gentile Christians to be circumcised. And so this actually is that central point of dispute in this argument over the law. To the Jewish faith and culture, circumcision wasn't just part of the law, but it was necessary for their salvation. Their solution to sin was returning to the law. And so they practiced these customs, whether it was circumcision or sacrifices or something else. They practiced these customs as their way back to God and to being righteous. But remember, the law is a mirror, not a savior. So what does Paul say about this approach? Verse 25, circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you have not been circumcised. Paul says, yes, circumcision is a good thing. It has value, but in what context? If you follow and obey the law, and if you don't, then your circumcision is meaningless. It's worthless. Now, circumcision isn't a practice of our faith today, so let's translate this into modern Christian terms for us. Baptism has value if you obey God's law. But if you continually sin against God, then your baptism is meaningless. It cannot save you. Communion has value if you obey God's law. But if you continually sin against God, then taking communion is meaningless. It cannot save you. Imagine that you injure yourself, and so you go to the doctor, and the doctor gives you an x-ray, and the x-ray reveals a fracture in the bone. That law is like in the x-ray. The x-ray illuminates where there is a fracture and how bad the fracture is. The law illuminates for us where there is sin in our lives and how bad that sin is. But that x-ray is not going to heal your bone. Repeatedly getting an x-ray or bringing in a higher-powered x-ray machine is not going to fix the situation. And coming back to the law and clutching to the practices and traditions and customs of the law are not going to fix our sin or save us or make us righteous. In fact, the Greek wording that Paul uses here is even stronger than what we see in the English 
He says, if we break the law, if we continually sin against God, not only are these practices useless, but we become the very thing that we're trying to separate from. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. Baptism is the physical representation of bearing the old and then rising to walk in newness of life. But if we are continually sinning against God, then we become the very thing, the sin that we are trying to separate from and bury. Paul says the same thing about communion in 1 Corinthians. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Jesus tells us that the cup is the new covenant in his blood, which is poured out for us. And when we take communion, we proclaim Christ's death until he comes. The old is gone and the new is here. But if we partake of the elements while continuing to partake in sin, then we become the very thing we're trying to separate from and bury. The Bible makes clear that clutching to these religious practices or these customs, however good they may be, will not fix our sin and will not make us righteous. So then Paul turns to God's path. Verse 28, a person is not a Jew who is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Remember, Paul is writing this to Christians. And when we put our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, we are justified. Your sin is forgiven. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul puts it this way. He says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works. But justification is not the end of the journey. It's the beginning of the journey because the goal is not just to be justified. The goal is to become like Jesus. And justification is the first step in that journey. So let's go back to our x-ray example, right? The x-ray can show us where your fracture is and how bad it is, but it cannot heal it. You need a doctor to come and fix it. In the same way, the law or the written code, as Paul calls it here, can illuminate our sin and can show us where it is and how bad it is, but it cannot fix it. We need a doctor to come and to fix it. When the fracture is gone, the x-ray will reveal a picture of good health. But the x-ray is only revealing what is already on the inside. And Jesus is the only one who can save us. And he gives us his spirit to transform us. This is not us cleaning up our act. This is the work of the spirit within us. And that work is expressed outwardly. This is not you changing for God. This is God changing you. A change that begins internally and is expressed outwardly in how we live. Paul reminds us in Philippians, for it is God who works in you. 
Now notice here, Paul is not discounting circumcision. Paul is not dismissing the law. Rather, Paul is highlighting for us that outside behaviors put on display the inside work of Jesus. Our faith in Christ is first and foremost an inner work of the heart before it is expressed outwardly in all of these practices. And these practices, whether it's baptism or communion or serving a church or loving our neighbors, are an outward expression of what God is already doing inside each of us. I've asked my friend Dana to join us this morning to help illustrate this for us. So Dana, welcome. Now, uh, Dana is recently engaged. And uh, when someone gets engaged, you notice their ring, right? You can't miss it because they are obnoxiously waving it in your face. There's a million photos from every angle on your social media feeds. Now, we can invite a jeweler here today, and they could examine Dana's ring, and they could look at the cut and the purity of the diamond, or the quality of the metal, or the exquisiteness of the design, and they would put a price on it. But what is the value of her ring? If Dana were to not wear the ring one day, if she were to get up and forget to put it on in the morning, is she any less engaged? No. Right? And if Dana were to let her friend try on her ring, and she took it off, and her friend puts it on, is she any less engaged? No. Does her friend now become engaged? Does her friend become the fiance? No, right? And knock on wood, if, uh, if the engagement were to end, it's not gonna happen, but hypothetically, if the engagement were to end and Dana continues to wear her ring, is she still engaged? Does the ring somehow restore that relationship? No and no. The value of this ring is not in the cut or purity of the diamond or the quality of the metal or the exquisiteness of the design. The value of this ring is in the love and commitment that between Dana and her fiance. And Dana wears this ring and she shows it off and she displays it for all of us to see because it is the outward expression of the life transformation that's already happened within her. Baptism, communion, serving in church, loving our neighbors. All of these things are just like Dana's ring. The value is in the love and commitment between Christ and his church, you and me. And we do these things, we practice these things because it is the outward expression of the life transformation that has already happened and continues to happen inside each of us. Dana, thank you and congratulations. So how can we use the law to see our sin, but then trust the Holy Spirit to transform us? I'm gonna give you three practical steps to consider. Number one, we must take sin seriously. This entire dispute here in Romans over the law that Paul's addressing is a dispute over how we handle sin. We often hear that God is love, and he is. But we don't realize the fullness of that love until we awaken to the gravity of our own sin. If I'm being honest, we don't take sin seriously enough in American Christianity. We often brush it off like it's a wrong turn or a missed exit. 
There are things that, that we are so much more bothered by, like a costly mistake at work or a bad grade on an exam or a bad game in whatever sport, even if we're not playing in that game and we're just watching it from our couch. These things bother us and, they, and we struggle and wrestle with these things, but sin, cheating on the test, cheating on your taxes, cheating on your spouse, we brush these things off. That's an afterthought. The past, past few weeks, we've preached a lot about sin and a lot of you have become very uncomfortable, but that demonstrates exactly how much of an afterthought this is for us. What we are doing dishonors God. It is blaspheming God's name. We are committing sacrilege against God. That's what the word blaspheme means. And our families, our communities, and the world around us are watching us do it. Let that sink in. For some of you, you've been baptized, you take communion, you come here every Sunday, and yet you will walk out of these doors and walk right back in to your lifestyle of sin. You've got the ring, but there's no relationship. Or even worse, you're cheating on the relationship. Before you do anything else today, you need to repent. Confess your sins to God. Ask Jesus for forgiveness and ask the Holy Spirit to help and to guide you, to lead you not into temptation and to deliver you from evil. Secondly, we need to stop striving and shaming. For others of you, you take sin seriously. You confess your sins to God. You seek his forgiveness regularly. And yet you are still struggling with the guilt of past sin or with the struggles of today. You've been baptized. You take communion. You come here every Sunday. You volunteer. You serve. And you continuously wonder if you are doing enough to make you worthy of God's grace. And if that's you, I want you to hear this. For it is God who works in you. And elsewhere, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works. That chasm that you feel between the depth of your sin and the glory of God. That chasm is how high and how wide and how long and how deep the love of God for you is. Accept it and trust that the Holy Spirit is not done with you yet. And lastly, we need to focus on Jesus and submit to his spirit. See, the more we dwell on something, the more we become inclined to it, the more we become like it. And this is simple. This is because we become what we behold. And so if we want to escape sin, the solution is not to try harder. It is not to focus on sin more. But the solution to escaping sin is to focus on Jesus. And that is the job of the Holy Spirit, to lead us to focus on Jesus. His letter to the Philippians, Paul commands them, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Why? Because we become what we behold. 
So how do we know if we're walking with the Spirit? How do we evaluate our walk with the Spirit? Paul gives us a sort of litmus test as he closes out this passage. He writes, such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. There's a simple question we can ask ourselves. Whose praise do we seek? Or in other words, why do we do what we do? The person that walks with the Spirit lives for an audience of one. And they do not care who else thinks what else about them. They only seek God's praise. This summer, the 2024 Olympic Games will come to Paris, France, and it will be the 100th anniversary of the 1924 Games in Paris. And in that Olympics, there was a British sprinter deemed the fastest man in Britain who withdrew from the legendary 100-meter dash, his best race, because he found out that the preliminary heats were to be held on the Sunday. That man's name is Eric Little, and his story is immortalized in the award-winning film Chariots of Fire. Little was called a traitor, and his decision was resented throughout Britain. And the movie recounts the scene where he is meeting with the British Olympic Committee and with Prince Edward, and they're trying to convince him to run. And they remind him that he doesn't just run for himself. He runs for his country and for his future king. And Little's response illuminates his walk with the Spirit. He says, God makes countries, God makes kings, and the rules by which they govern, these, those rules say the Sabbath is his, and I, for one, intend to keep it that way. That scene closes with one of the committee members remarking about Little. He is a true man of principle and a true athlete. His speed is only an extension of his life. We sought to sever his running from himself. This is not a story of somebody who held on to the traditions of faith. This is a story of somebody who walked with the Spirit. And that permeated every facet of his life. That would be, uh, Eric Little would eventually run the 400 meters instead. He would win gold and set a world record. And that would be his last games. He would, with, he would withdraw from athletics and he would go to China where he would become a missionary. And during World War II, he would be taken by Japanese forces. And he refused early release so he could continue to care for the children that were in the prison camp. And he would die there in 1945. Allow God's law to be the mirror that shows you your sin. Then allow Jesus to save you and the Holy Spirit to transform your life. May we live for an audience of one. Let's pray. Jesus, we confess, I confess that so often I live for an audience of anybody and everybody except for you. And God, we ask for your forgiveness and we ask for your Holy Spirit to guide us from this place. God, will we see you for who you are? Would we awaken to the depths and the gravity of our sin? And would your Spirit lead us forth to become more like you, that the lives that we live would be an outward expression of the life transformation of your work inside each and every one of us. 
We love you and we ask this in your precious and holy name. Amen.